Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. History of England, episode 29, England in the reign of King Henry. Before we go to any history, I have to tell you about the most exciting thing of all time. I was wildly excited to get an email telling me that I have been nominated for the massively prestigious European Podcast Award. You can only guess at the excitement when I told the rest of my family. The dog wagged his tail and wondered if the European podcast was something he could eat. One of my daughters informed me that in certain circles I could be considered to be a loser. The other daughter gave me a look that led me to understand that she could be part of one of those circles. And I have to admit that I have never heard of the massively prestigious European Podcast Awards. And I also understand from the rules that it would have been perfectly possible for me to nominate myself. But look, I didn't. And one of you kind people out there did. So whoever you are, thank you. I am genuinely excited. It means that I can now call myself the award-nominated History of England podcast. How fantastic would it be if we actually won as well as being nominated? I well remember Mike Duncan's excitement on the History of Rome winning the Best Education podcast of the year, and while I can't pretend to be in the same league as that, it would also be great to win an award. So you all have a job to do, and here's what you have to do if you'd like to vote. You have to either go to my website at thehistoryofengland.typepad.com and there's a post there with a link. Or you can go direct to www.european-podcast-award.eu. Now, I need to fess up and say that I've already been to the website and voted. And yes, I voted for myself, which I understand is shameful. 
Unfortunately, I also managed to do it too quickly, so I've given myself the worst possible score, i.e. just one star. So look, I really need help. Okay, so with that excitement out of the way, let's return to the history, which is after all why you're here. Last week, or that is to say in 1106 at Tranchebrae, Henry resolved the issue of who ruled. And to the barons' relief, the ducal and the royal crowns were reunited. The barons liked this. It's mighty complicated to have different rulers in England and Normandy. I can't remember if I've explained this before, but since many barons owned land on both sides of the channel, having different rulers in each place just really complicated life. It was perfectly acceptable to owe fealty to different lords for different bits of land, but if two lords came to blows, they often had to make a choice, which put them into a socially awkward position. If they choose A, B would confiscate their lands in one place, and vice versa. So really, irrespective of who ruled, they preferred to have one guy in the driving seat. By 1106, another issue had also been resolved, the issue of lay investiture. Now, I'm sure you've been worrying about this since last week, when we left the situation in limbo, and you're desperate to know how the situation was resolved. Well, this week, I can promise you that you'll know the answer, and we'll be able to rest easy in your beds. Just to refresh your memories then, in 1101, Anselm was back in England, as the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he and Henry had agreed to differ until the Pope gave his ruling. Well, the Pope has, rather unsurprisingly, now come back and said that the English custom was not acceptable, that church appointments must be made by the relevant church authority, and not the king or the local lord. Not a big shock, I have to say. The only difference in this situation to that between Rufus and the papacy was that this time all the parties really wanted to find an agreeable way out. Henry was in the middle of a scrap with his brother and the Pope, locked in intermittent struggles with the Holy Roman Emperor, really didn't want to make an example of a basically pious and supportive king. Looking back, the answer seems all rather obvious, but you have to understand how strongly both parties felt about the issue. Henry was quite clear that centuries of English custom made it clear that church appointments were his gig. And anyway, he was a king who'd had God's blessing and effectively become the leading priest of the church superior to all other priests through the coronation ceremony. The Pope and church reformers, meanwhile, were absolutely clear that the king was a temporal ruler. The Pope and the Pope alone was the world's spiritual ruler, and therefore only he could possibly invest his churchmen. It was Henry, actually, who in 1107 resolved the issue. He suggested that he would drop his right to invest churchmen with the ring and staff, as long as he could take their homage for the land that went with the offer. Pope Pascal accepted, in fact basically bit Henry's hand off. Of course he pretended extreme reluctance and used words such as bending a little in order to pick up the prostrate man and that the agreement was just for the moment. But basically he was mightily relieved. And this was a true compromise. Both parties had given up important stuff. In the short term the deal looked to favour Henry because in practice it was still the king's view that decided who got the job, not the bishop or the archbishop. The agreement didn't reduce Henry's power one whit. But in the long run, Henry really had given up something absolutely fundamental. The English monarchy's claim to be the country's spiritual leader, as well as its temporal ruler. You could also claim that the agreement is a move towards the end of feudalism, because it acknowledged the king would get revenue for the land that came with the church office, 
rather than getting the revenue from the person itself. That sounds a bit arcane to me, but pure feudalism was a personal relationship between a man and his lord, not between a king and an office holder. One of our themes over the next couple of hundred years will be how the nature of feudalism and the government of the English state gradually changes. Well, here's a very first little suspicion of a change. In 1122, the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry V, signed the historic Concordat of Worms, which finally brought peace and an end, for a while at least, to the conflict between the Holy Roman Emperor and the papacy that had been going on since Gregory VII, and had been in danger of tearing Europe apart. And hey, the agreement was pretty much exactly the same as the agreement made in England. So let's hear it for Henry and Anselm. They saved Europe from everlasting religious conflict. Yay! It's also interesting to reflect on why Henry and the church managed to come to an agreement, where Rufus and the church couldn't manage it. And the difference was that Rufus was essentially completely irreverent and anti-clerical, while Henry was very much noted for his piety. Henry really wanted to come to an agreement, and his wife was probably even more keen. In fact, I should have mentioned that she'd already got herself into a nunnery when Henry came along and persuaded her to marry him for the good of the nation. So the whole atmosphere of the court was very religious. Henry took a broader interest in the church than just how much cash could be bled out of it. At the same time, by luck, consequence or simply serendipity, Henry's reign is a period of growth and achievement for the church. There is a rash of monastic historians such as William of Malmesbury and Simeon of Durham. The art of manuscript illumination recovered its quality. On that last point, I need to be absolutely clear that what I know about early 12th century manuscript illumination could be written on the inside of a ping-pong ball. So look, I'm assuming these other historian guys know what they're talking about. Just don't challenge me on that one. And then there is a settlement of new monastic orders. In fact, more than 40 abbeys and priories are established during Henry's reign. This included the Austin Canons and Saviniac monks, but the big one was the establishment of five Cistercian houses, including Revo, Tintern and Fountains. And these are all places you need to go and visit if you haven't already. Absolutely stunning places. All these orders supported reform, and indeed, Henry sponsored church reform to boot, and helped Anselm in his efforts. And after the discord of Rufus's reign, Anselm must have been delighted. And it's a return to the good old days of church and state working hand in hand. Henry's long 34-year reign was also remarkably peaceful, or in England at least. Basically, after the first kerfuffle, that was it. There was pretty much no more major revolts from barons, although there are some individual ones. And this is pretty exceptional. But this was far from the case in France, where there was a constant struggle for the survival of the Anglo-Norman kingdom against the circling French wolves. We'll go through all of that next week, but one of the consequences of all this war was the growth of royal administration and finances. Henry I's reign is where we really see the whole thing take off. It's ironic, isn't it, that war, which is such a destructive activity, so often leads to so much innovation. And this was absolutely the case in Henry's reign. One of the biggest charges laid against Henry was that, just like his brother and his father, he taxed his subjects into misery to support his avarice and his wars. Here's a comment from the chronicler Roger of Hoveden in the year 1103. It is not easy to describe the misery which at this period the land of England endured by reason of the king's exactions. Here is a typical entry in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle in 1116. This land and the people were also sorely oppressed by the taxes the king took. 
There's a similar entry for 1118, and then again in 1124. Full heavy a year was it, the man with any goods was plundered for them, by severe taxes and severe courts. He who had none died of hunger. I could go on, but I think you get the message. It's a difficult time, taxes-wise. I'm bound to say that here again Henry proves himself the absolutely typical Norman king. It's all war and taxes. There is a bit more to Henry, but much of it is sadly motivated by the need for cash. So one of those changes is the definite increase in the efficiency and complexity of royal administration and the development of government. This is very much a gradual medieval theme, and it'll come up again and again. So something for you to look forward to, folks. A lot of it starts here in Henry's reign. One big example is the Exchequer. So those of you listening in the UK will recognise the term the Chancellor of the Exchequer, of course. For those outside the UK, there's no reason why we should suppose that you know that the Chancellor of the Exchequer is Britain's Finance Minister. Well, the term Exchequer starts in Henry's reign. Essentially, all the sheriffs are called into London twice a year to do their accounts and make sure they've been gathering the money they were supposed to do. The king's officers would sit at court behind a big table marked out with squares and an abacus so that adding up the accounts could be done easily and also could be done publicly and visibly. The squares made the table look like a chessboard and hence the title of the exchequer. Another fab fact is that the Arabic number system was just starting to be used in some places about this time, with all its advantages over the Roman system. The 12th century sees a general learning actually from Arabic scholarship, including maths and astrology, and the Al in the number of mathematical disciplines such as algebra, for example, owe their English names to the word Al in Arabic. Hmm, little fab fact for you. Anyway, there's also a massive increase in record-keeping that starts in Henry's reign, and way more records survive to the current day, although the real lift-off happens in Henry II's reign. This is partly because of what are called the pipe rolls. So what happened was that after the Michaelmas interrogation of the sheriffs, all the accounts would be written down on a massive sheepskin, or actually two sheepskins sewn together. The name pipe roll comes from the fact that they all lack pipes, because they're all rolled up. The point about these pipe rolls is that loads of them survive to the current day and they give us an incredibly detailed insight into the nature and workings of government, particularly into the royal finances. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Another innovation introduced by Henry I was massively important for the development of credit. Lending money was a sin for Christians, so credit in the medieval world was not easy to come by. One of the exceptions, of course, were the Jewish communities, who were unknown in England before the conquest, although there was a community in Rouen. So one of the impacts of the conquest was to make their services available also to the English, something we'll come back to in a bit more detail at some point in the future. There are some other signs of credit and alternative forms of money by the time of Henry. 
One was the practice of goldsmiths to give paper receipts, which people could sell on, being lighter and easier than real money. Henry's innovation, though, was the tally stick. When the sheriffs came into the exchequer, they would give a commitment to the amount of money that they would be able to give the king from their region. That would then be recorded on a tally stick, in the form of a specific set of cuts. The tally stick was then split in two, so that both the king and the sheriff had a record of the commitment, and a secure way of nobody being able to cheat. Meanwhile, the king could exchange those tally sticks for real money or goods. This system lasts for over 700 years, so it was pretty effective. Indeed, it's the burning of old tally sticks that was responsible for the fire of 1834 that burned down the Houses of Parliament. Another fab fact. Meanwhile, the sheriffs, incidentally, were quite at liberty to raise more money than they committed to and pocket the difference. But it wasn't easy. Henry worked really hard to screw as much money out of the sheriffs as possible. Since the sheriffs had often bought their position, the harder Henry pushed them, the harder they pushed their counties. And at the bottom of this process was, of course, the poor old peasant. One of the problems Henry faced was the problem of maintaining the value of the coinage. For centuries, kings with a brain, even Ethelred, had appreciated the importance of a reliable coinage. But when in 1124 to 1125 shipments of silver coin to Normandy proved to be rubbish, Henry gave more evidence of both his determination to maintain a strong currency and the brutality of his methods. Roger of Hoverden puts it succinctly. The moneyers throughout almost the whole of England were, by the king's order, seized for having secretly debased the coin, and their right hands being first cut off were then deprived of their virility. As far as I can see, there doesn't seem to have been any due process of law or attempt to separate the guilty from the innocent. Pretty brutal. And of course it doesn't solve the problem. Henry struggles throughout his reign as more and more silver flows out of England into Normandy to feed his French wars. All over Europe during the 12th and 13th centuries, we see the growth in central government and the slow and steady march towards the modern centralised administration. Henry was very much part of this trend. We saw under Rufus the start of the career administrator, the civil service, if you like, though no one would have called it that at the time. So, for example, Ranulf Flambar had become a sort of country manager for Rufus, while Rufus did all the exciting stuff. Which reminds me, incidentally, I must finish off the story of Ranulf, since he definitely qualifies as one of my favourite characters of Norman England. Don't let me forget before the end of the episode. Henry followed Rufus's lead. Roger, the Bishop of Salisbury, carried out the same role in England, and John, Bishop of Lisieux, did the same in Normandy. So that gives us three layers of government now. There's Henry at the top, storming around the kingdom with his household, firing off rich, shouting at barons who stepped out of line, doing a bit of justice here and there, and fighting, and shouting. Then there's his deputies, Roger and John, who are based in the Exchequer Courts at Winchester and Rouen, helped out by a staff and carrying out day-to-day -day admin. And then finally at the bottom there are the local royal officials in the shires, of which there are a fistful. So sheriffs, castellans who manage the royal castles, local justices, reeves, bailiffs and foresters looking after royal land. Henry's court itself though had a very different feel to Rufus's. The whole thing was much more businesslike. Gone with the wild parties and extravagant fashions, long pointy shoes and long flowing hair were gone. Shaven cheeks and short hair were back in. Royal business, the church and piety were back. Don't get me wrong, Henry was no saint. 
Henry apparently holds the record for the largest number of illegitimate children born to any English monarch. Hurrah! Please give it up for Henry I. Apparently there were 20, and Henry used them as freely as political counters. He had a whole load of mistresses, and by the looks of things, carried on the relationships over a good period of time. So, for example, somewhere around his early 30s, Henry met Sibella Corbett of Ulster, nine years his junior in her early to mid-twenties, who was at some point the wife of Herbert Fitzherbert. Over the next ten years or so, they had six or seven children together. The girls were able to all marry well. There were no end of lords happy to have a connection with the royal house, and husbands for these girls included Alexander, the King of Scotland. The boys were recognised and looked after by their father. Reginald, for example, came Earl of Cornwall, and one of Sibylla's sons might well have been Robert, who becomes Earl of Gloucester and a real mover and shaker in the next reign. If only children born out of marriage could inherit, the whole history of 12th century England could have been different. But it was English common law that forbade this. Interestingly, church law said that if any point the couple got married, then all the children would be legitimised. So when he has his later problem with the succession, according to the church, he could just have tried to marry Sibella and all his problems would have been over. But I'm now in the grip of a hideous digression into sexual habits when my synopsis said, let's talk about government administration. So sorry about that, but just a couple more points in it while I'm on it. So, of course, the church was thoroughly and famously miserable about sex outside marriage and actually not that happy about it within it. So, for example, from the Synod of Salisbury in 1218, here's this little gem. It should be drilled into lay people that all sexual intercourse, unless it has the excuse of marriage, is a mortal sin. I do like the word excuse. It sort of gives the right grudging flavour of the official church attitude. But of course, like many things, there's a kind of official line in life that the bigwigs lecture everyone on about, while the rest of us get on with normal life. And of course, priests themselves were having sex all over the place. And many of them probably thought it was all fine. So here's a quote from one that describes fornication as the common vice of almost everyone. That seems quite excusable to many. There's a completely scurrilous story about the papal legate John of Cremer. Obviously a massively powerful and important figure, attending a synod of London at this time and lecturing the synod in the chronicler's words of the wickedness of rising from the side of a harlot to make the body of Christ, i.e. taking mass. That very evening, poor old John was duly surprised in the company of a harlot and fled England in confusion. In John's defence, I'm told that most historians think this was an attempt to blacken his name. So it would appear that I am now less by way of a historian and more by way of a spreader of gossip and rumour from the 12th century. But it seemed like a nice story. The point of all this is that sex outside marriage went on pretty much then as it does now. And in aristocratic circles, these relationships could be pretty well structured, stable and accepted. Henry de Mara, for example, held his estate in Oxfordshire for the service of being the Lord King's doorkeeper and looking after the whores during the reign of Henry II. Our mate Ranulf Flambar had an English mistress called Aliva, and they had at least two children together. After Ranulf became the Bishop of Durham, he found Aliva a good husband in the form of a Burgess of Huntingdon, and the relationship between them remained good. He helped her relatives out and often stayed with her on his travels. However, the penalties for having an affair with a married person was quite a different matter. So a husband who found his wife in adultery was legally permitted to castrate her lover. And indeed there's a recorded case in 1212 where Robert Butler found William Wake with his wife. 
Robert's men seized him and castrated him, and in the following legal case, entirely exonerated him for doing so. Ouch. Anyway, all of that was, I accept, a hideous digression. I think we were talking about Henry's administration, weren't we? I got onto his court and things went on from there. OK, so while official administration is being more organised, the royal household at this time also begins to grow to cope with the amount of business that needs doing and begins to take on a more formal structure. We know about this specifically because a document describing all the jobs and pay has survived right from the start of Stephen's reign. So we are in an unusually well-informed position. Essentially, the royal household followed the physical structure of a royal palace, with the staff in each bit reflecting the jobs that went on there. So there was the hall, headed by a steward, and the hall handled everything to do with food and drink. The chamber was led by the master chamberlain, and they handled all the king's private matters and sleeping arrangements. Quaintly, the tradition of keeping the treasury under the king's bed that we talked about in Anglo-Saxon times continues, so the chamberlain deals also with all financial matters. And then there's the chapel, which dealt not only with spiritual matters, but because clerics were the world's writers, that's also where the chancery was, producing all the records and written documentation. And finally, there's the constable, who dealt with everything outside. Military matters, obviously, but also policing, hunting, that sort of thing. And here lay the kernel of major government departments of the future. And here was also developing the role of career administrators, people of relatively humble origin who could earn themselves wealth and power. The more important clerics routinely became bishops, and even the more humble could end up with a pretty reasonable estate. The demand for ever greater royal revenue also led to an increase in royal justice. The chief justiciar's court at the centre became an increasingly popular way to go to law, rather than waiting an absolute age to get the king's ear. And a further innovation was the development of a group of justices who travelled round the country on what would become known as heirs, a word meaning circuits. This increasing availability and scope of royal justice was not necessarily about equality and fairness. It was just as much about gathering fines and dues and protecting the royal rights. But it did have the consequence of reducing the power of the local feudal baronial courts. I suppose we should begin to expect to talk about a number of emerging themes, shouldn't we? The emergence of the modern state, as already mentioned, the development of parliamentary democracy, the creation of a modern justice system, all that sort of thing. And so here in Henry's reign, we have a first step in one of those long processes, with the beginning of the process of centralising and rationalising the delivery of justice. Let me tell you, we are not there yet, and we've got a very long way to go, but it is a first step. The other significant step in the development of justice, then, since we're on this theme, are those circuit judges I mentioned, because they see the beginning of English common law. Common law is called common law because it was the law that was commonly applied, rather than being subject to a whole load of local customs and different ways of doing things. With travelling royal judges, we now have a group of men who are applying and upholding that common law. It's a much bigger theme in Henry II's reign, but it does seem to start here. Henry's achievement in developing the efficiency of royal justice and administration ended up by giving him two nicknames. One of these was the one we mentioned last week, the Lion of Justice. And in one sense, it's not hard to see how he acquired it. In addition to the extension of justice we've just talked about, Henry generated a rash of compilations of laws from Knut, Edward and even William I. 
And of course, there's that original coronation charter Henry issued, part of which was to confirm his adherence to ancient custom. Henry also acquired the title of Beauclerk. I tell you, there's all matter of opinion about this. According to popular tradition, Henry was supposed to be the first king who was fluent in English. Or maybe it was because he could read and write in Latin. Well, I have to go with the historians I have read who tell me that Henry was illiterate and there was no evidence that he spoke English whatsoever. All we really know is that French was his mother tongue. But whatever the reason, it seems that in some way Henry impressed his contemporaries with his learning. Before I finish this week, I promised to finish off the story of Ranulf Flambard. Whatever his unpopularity at the time, he'd managed to survive the difficult transition to Henry's reign, and indeed the fall of his protector Robert, with quite remarkable skill. So he became Bishop of Durham for 29 years until his death in 1128. Roger of Hoveden tells a story about Ranulf being trampled to death in an accident, with a horse and a monk, while in the company of the king. It's all a bit unlikely, but what it does tell us, however, that much as the chroniclers hated him, Ranulf was a player, and he remained so. He might have been as rapacious in collecting revenues as his detractors claim, but he was, after all, not the instigator of that policy that came from the king. And he was the first of a breed of professional administrators. His energy delivered great building projects he gave liberally to the poor and was basically pretty effective. So I think he deserves a bit more of a positive press. OK, so that brings us to the end of things this week. Next week we'll look at how Henry copes with the pressures on his foreign borders and at the succession crisis, as history pulls us remorsely towards the anarchy. Don't forget that award thingy at www.european-podcast-award.eu or go to my site at historyofengland.typepad.com. Have a great week and I'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 